Well, good morning. Busy morning, crazy morning, trying to figure out what we were going to deal with on our way here. Uh, I'm glad to see you all. I did a lot of research before making the decision today and came to the conclusion that uh, the Lord wanted us to be here. And boy, did we have a great time in worship today. Amen. So we know that God is good and we know that God has provided for us to be able to be here today and we're grateful. Uh, just a note, uh, Pastor Sal wanted me to mention uh, with the, the snow on the ground, because I actually think we, we weren't here last Sunday, right? So it's the first time, I think, probably the first time since some of the snow. Uh, you've noticed out there, there's a lot of it. And uh, when they plow the, the lot, they sometimes have to move some of the snow onto some of the additional spaces. So because we're a little tight on parking, uh, and I keep telling myself, maybe three more weeks, right? Three more weeks, four more weeks. I keep thinking maybe, you know, the sun will come out tomorrow, tomorrow, um, and we'll get rid of some of this snow. But uh, in the meantime, please be patient with us. The lot is uh, packed. We double parked today. So if you are one of those fortunate people that were double parked, uh, and when we end the service, we, we ask you that you'd move your car. You don't have to leave. Uh, you certainly can just move out of the way so others who need to leave can get out. Uh, there's always parking afterwards, so that should be fine. Okay, with that, let's open up in our Bibles to Psalm 144. I was going to teach 144 last week, and then I was going to teach 145 this week, uh, but Pastor Russ had told me the songs he picked out, and they were kind of geared for this week toward 145. So then I looked at the Psalms, and I said, you know what, we can do both of these. We're not in a rush to get out of here. Uh, and they kind of go together. As I put them together, I realized, you know what, this is probably a better way to teach Psalm 144 and Psalm 145, that is back to back. But we're going to start in Psalm 144, which is a prayer for victory over Israel's enemies. The Israelites, and David especially, they, they were always aware of the fact that they had enemies around them at all times. When you think about the people of God, just think about the old covenant and going back in history, and even today, you have to admit, has there really ever been a time where they weren't completely surrounded by their enemies? And still they're here. Uh, let, let's update that. You, as a Christian, maybe with conservative values, has there really ever been a time in your life where you haven't felt and actually haven't been surrounded by enemies of the truth? You see, I think it's important that we take a moment and recognize there's never been a time. See, the media gives us the illusion of certain things being either worse or better than they are, and you can't rely on that perception. They're far worse than you could possibly imagine, and so much better than you can begin to understand. Because you see, yes, the enemies have surrounded us, and, 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 and they're out to get us and destroy us. Spiritual enemies, physical enemies, political enemies. But the Lord is with us. And though we be surrounded with those that want to destroy us, we, like David, can say in prayer and in praise that God is with us and he defends us, and we know that he'll preserve us through all things. Let's open in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you because, well, you remind us of your goodness, but you also remind us of, remind us of your greatness. Not just your goodness, your greatness. 
that you're so good to us, but great and mighty to preserve us and protect us and keep us safe. We thank you that you continue to protect our church, our church family, that you've got us all here safely today. We pray that you'd get us safely through the rest of this icy week. But Lord, may we not be guided by fear or distracted by things that would make us feel terror instead of comfort. And I pray that today's study would help us to be reminded, as David reminds us, that we can praise you in the midst of problems. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first part of our study is about that. Actually, all of it today. Praising God in problems. The good news is everyone has problems. What? Yeah, everyone has problems. But you know why that's good news? Because if you have a problem, you're a candidate for a miracle. If you have a problem in your life, if you have something you're dealing with, you're a candidate for God to do an awesome work in and through your life to protect you, to save you. David understood this, and because he understood this, he wrote Psalms that made it abundantly clear that he put all of his hope in God. Now, David cries out to the Lord to deliver him from his enemies. And this we've been talking about going back two weeks ago, but we've been talking about for several weeks, we've been talking about the fact that we can cry out to the Lord to deliver us from our enemies. And so we pick it up in Psalm 144, in verses 1 and 2, Praise! Be to the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. David was a warrior. He was a bit of a renaissance man before there was a renaissance. He was that man that could have the sensitivity to write beautiful psalms of praise and cry out to God, and have no shame in doing so, but be fierce on the battlefield. A warrior, the champion of Israel. He had no problem with the sensitivity in the spirit, and he had no problem with being out on the battlefield leading the armies of Israel to victory over their foes. David had his issues, but one thing you can always say about David, he was passionate. He was passionate. When he got in trouble, it was his passion that led him into trouble. When he was victorious, it was his passion that led him to victory. And David here now, recognizing that God delivers him, praises the Lord who protects him and gives him victory over his enemies. He declares the Lord is his true source of strength. The true source of his strength, the rock, his rock, his foundation, his strength. He's the one who equips him and empowers him for battle. He declares the Lord is also, though, loving, good, kind, and faithful to him. He sees the side of God that is loving and compassionate, and he sees the side of God God that's strong and, and powerful and victorious over his enemies. It takes a special person to see both sides of of God. Another more than one facet to God's character, but the side of, there's, there's God's love, which is long-suffering and patient and abounding in mercy. But then there's his justice and his judgment and his strength and even his wrath against evil and, and the enemies of God. So when you, when you put those two sides together, you get a very balanced look and understanding of who God is. 
Now, what I do understand here is that David wanted to be like God. He had a heart for God. He wanted to be like God. And he understood the nature of God. And when you look at David's life, David was a very loving person. He was a compassionate person. But he was also fierce when it came to evil. See, I I keep looking at this and, and thinking, this is who I need to be. I need, when it comes to the enemies of God and his truth, to be fierce. To be unstoppable. But when it comes to love and compassion and mercy... I need to be long-suffering and patient and kind and all of the attributes of God that, that help us to lead people to the love of God. That's a tough balance, isn't it? It's a tough balance. You know, some of you know I study martial arts now, and there's two aspects to that. There's martial and there's arts. There's the beauty, and then there's the deadly. And I'll tell you something. There is a balance in life of of making sure that we're never so vindictive and vengeful that we forget that God is love. We can become, especially in these dark days, warriors for the truth and start lopping heads off. You, you know, we have to be careful. David is a, is a great balance of this, and I wanted to point that out. You see, the thing is, he knew that God was his fortress. He knew that God was his stronghold. By the way, he's hiding in caves throughout his exile. So he understands what a fortress and a stronghold is. It's a, he knows that the Lord is his refuge, his protection, his hiding place, if you will. He knows that the Lord is the one that saves him, defends him, and keeps him safe. And he's the one that gives him victory over the enemies of Israel. And because of that confidence, he can trust in God's love and at the same time, step out in battle. And then David goes on to contrast the greatness of the Lord with the weakness of man. You see, so many times we make boogeymen out of, out of things that really shouldn't scare us. Oh my goodness, this last year. See, if you look to man, you'll be afraid all the time. The fear of man is a snare, the book of Proverbs says. But those that trust in the Lord are what? Kept safe. See, if your trust is in God, fear's not going to rule your life. And right now, if you're not in Christ, then you are afraid of everything. From viruses to civil unrest to political problems, you're afraid of everything. But if you're in Christ, you can be strong, bold, and confident that God is in control and not be afraid because God is your stronghold, because he's your strength. But you can be courageous in battle. You can step out and not be overcome by fear. Look what it says in verses 3 through 4 of Psalm 144. Oh Lord, what is man that you care for him? Reminds me what... The psalmist said in Psalm 8, what a man that you, 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 you consider him, or the son of man that you think about him. You know, listen, why does God even think about us? Oh, Lord, he says in verse 3, what is man that you care for him? The son of man that you think of him. Man is like a breath, his days like a fleeting shadow. When you compare who, who man is with God, there's no comparison. There's no comparison between God and man. You can't even put them on the same uh, line and compare them. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous to do so. But what he realizes, David realizes, is that God must be loving because why would he even think about us? He must be loving. Nothing else could motivate him to consider us, as the psalmist says. What is man that you consider him the son of man? What, what, what are we that God should even think about us? 
So David wants to ask the question, why would you care? Why would you even think about us? He declares man's existence is nothing when compared to eternity, and that's so true. I want you to think about the largest tree you can imagine in your mind. Maybe you have a tree in your backyard, not right now because there are probably no leaves on it, but in the summer or in the spring. When that tree starts to have all of those leaves, if someone said to you, I'll give you a million bucks if you can just tell me how many leaves are on that tree, you, you probably wouldn't come close. And if you tried to count them or, or actually managed to count them all, it'd be a lot, but it wouldn't be like billions. But if I were to say that for one leaf on that tree, you chop the whole thing down, what would you say? That'd be ridiculous, right? For the sake of one leaf, chop the tree down? And yet when you compare our lives now with lives in eternity, that's not even a good comparison. If you were to say, well, our life is like one leaf on that tree, that's not even close. You could say, our lives are like one grain of sand in the universe, and that wouldn't come close. One atom in the entire creation, and that wouldn't come close to eternity. So why would God care? Let alone, why would he send his son to die on a cross for your sins? See, David understood the heart of God. He was a man after what? God's own heart. He understood the heart of God. When you understand the heart of God, you can be fierce in battle, but be compassionate and merciful in your life. That's a wonderful example to follow. David asked the Lord to deliver him from the enemies of Israel. He always launched into battle saying, Lord, you got this. And I've been doing that most of my life, and especially over this last year. Whatever God calls me to just step out and say, well, Lord, you got this. Let's go. And I've seen God do his thing. I even said to Pastor Russ today after the worship service, and we thought no one would come out today. And I said, I've given up trying to figure out what God is doing anymore. I just go with it. I just trust God. Because I don't know what God is doing anymore. My mind, well, his thoughts are so far above my thoughts, his ways above my ways. They're too wonderful for me. And if I limit God to what I can understand, boy, that's like cutting down that tree for the sake of one leaf. God is so vast and eternal, and there's, there's just nothing our little minds can do to wrap around how great God is and how weak we are. But now he asks the Lord to get involved. Can I, can I encourage you? If you're feeling afraid, if you're going through trouble, if you're in the midst of problems, this is what you need to do. Back to our text in verse 5. Verses 5 through 8, I like what he says. Part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Can I hear an amen? You know, I would love to see that. I would really love to see that, and one day we will. But I would really, you know, oh, Lord, just come down. Fix this place, please. Part the heavens and come down. Boy, wouldn't that be great? I'd like to see all those. Well, I'm going to be nice. All of those individuals who defy God. Backpedal that one when the Lord shows up. And one day that'll happen. And hopefully they'll bow before that, because they will bow afterward. Part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Send forth lightning and scatter the enemies. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach down your hand from on high. Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners, whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. David had enemies, but he had the Lord. David had enemies, but he had the Lord. Now, he uses imagery from Exodus chapter 19. He's talking about Mount Sinai. 
but he's using that as a vision of how he wants to see God's judgment come down upon their enemies. He wants to see the glory of the Lord come down as it did on Mount Sinai. He wants the Lord to scatter their enemies by his mighty presence. And by the way, we're told, I believe in the book of Titus, Paul tells us that the enemies of the Lord are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. You know, something about that is just amazing. The brightness of his coming. The Lord, when he returns in the book of Revelation, it talks about the fact that his enemies are destroyed and it's not really a battle, it's a bloodbath. We can rely on God's victories. David did. He wants the Lord to deliver him by his mighty hand from their enemies. And he describes the invading armies around Israel as a mighty flood. That's a common metaphor. It's like a flood because you can't stop a flood. A flood starts to come in and what do you do? Well, that's kind of like an invasion. And many times in the scriptures, the invading armies are described as a as mighty waters or a mighty flood. And he describes them as liars and deceivers who seek to destroy them. You got that right, David. The enemies of God and his people are, if nothing else, liars and deceivers who seek to destroy. Now let's just stop a minute and remember that what Jesus said about the devil himself, Satan. He's a liar, right? Deceiver, I think we know that, right? And he is a great destroyer. In fact, that's another term that's used to describe Satan. So when the enemies of God and his people are are energized, motivated, and inspired, if I can use that word, inspired by the devil, is it any wonder that we feel that we're surrounded by our enemies? Well, you are. Or have you forgotten? If this was heaven, they wouldn't call it earth. I think we forget sometimes. This is the way it is. It was then, it is now. It was actually four or five years ago, too. It was four or five decades ago. It was four or five hundred years ago. It's just that we allow our world to shape the perspective and and our worldview. We allow the world to dictate the terms of the battle. It is far worse than you could possibly imagine and so much better than you could even believe. Because like Elijah and his servant, when they came out of the tents and they they looked and, 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 and Elijah just said, Open his eyes that he might see. And God opened his eyes. And they, yes, they were surrounded, I believe, by the Syrians. They were surrounded by the, arm, the enemies. But then God opened up his eyes and he saw that there were chariots of fire surrounding them. See, that's the part we don't often remember. God is mightier than the mightiest of our enemies. David knew that and that's why he prayed. He declares that he's going to praise the Lord once he has delivered him from the enemies of Israel. Now, understand what this is. In the Psalms, when someone says, I will praise you when you deliver me, it's an act of faith. You're saying, I'm going to praise you. It's not bargaining. It's, it's like, I'm looking forward to praising you when you deliver me. Do you, do, you, do you pray that way? Lord, I look forward to praising you when this whole thing is over and you've gotten me through it. See, it takes faith to say that, as opposed to, I don't know if I'm going to make it, Pastor. Pray for me. I think this could be it. This is the one time God is going to fail me. I know we don't say that out loud. You're just thinking it. But, you know, just remember that God is faithful. Amen? And look to him in these times. And know that when you say, I'm going to praise you, Lord, what you're saying is I'm putting my faith in him and not my circumstances. So he's going to praise the Lord once he's delivered him from his enemies. Did God deliver David from his enemies? Always. Will God and has God delivered you? Always. Always. Look what it says. 
We pick it up in verse 9 in Psalm 144. I will sing a new song. This is a songwriter. He's a composer. So when he says I'm going to sing a new song, you know what he's saying, right? I'm going to write one. I got it all figured out already. I got the chorus. I got the verses, you know. Now, being a composer, being a songwriter myself, I can tell you how this happens for me. Not everybody's the same. You get an idea, an inspiration, a spark, a verse, a thought, a theme, and it obsesses you. And, and you just can't shake it. It just gets in your head and you just, you're driving in the car and you're like, oh, I got to write this down. You pull over. And, you know, then you get to work and you're like, oh, wait. And, you know, you know write it down when the boss isn't looking. And it just stays with you until it's done. The process of songwriting isn't something that I control. It just kind of happens, especially if it's a song about the Lord and it's sort of an inspirational thing. It just overcomes me and there's just nothing I can do but just surrender to it. So when David says, I will sing a new song, I get it. I understand where he's coming from. He's focused on his deliverance. Amen? And he's not going to stop thinking about it until he's put pen to paper and written a new song. And by the way, I would suggest that new song might even be the next psalm. You'll see. It kind of answers the the statement here. But he says, I will sing a new song to you, O God, on the ten-string lyre. And I played a five-string banjo today, but a ten-string lyre. I don't play a ten-string lyre. I don't even think Russ plays a ten-string lyre. It's an old ancient instrument, but it's basically a harp or a guitar. It's a stringed instrument. And he says, and that's how psalms were played, on the ten-string lyre, I will make music to you To the one who gives victory to kings, who delivers his servant David from the deadly sword. He plans on finishing that song. His faith is carrying him through his problems because he praises God in his problems. You got problems? Join the club. We all got problems. The world's got problems. Our nation's got problems. Our problems have problems. Are you praising God in your problems? David did. He did. And he's going to praise the Lord for giving him victory. A victory he hasn't received just yet over his enemies on the battlefield. And by the way, have you noticed the enemies of truth are starting to eat each other alive? I don't know if you keep up with what's going on in our world, but it's pretty interesting. It's kind of like what you saw in the Old Testament when the Israelites would go into battle and the night before the Edomites and the Ammonites would get confused, and all of a sudden they start killing each other. And then the armies of Israel would show up to the battle, and on the battlefield there were all these bodies. Something had happened in the middle of the night. Sometimes God would send an angel. Sometimes they'd just go at it and kill each other. I'm okay with that. May the enemies of God and his truth wipe each other out. That'll save us a lot of grief. But here's what we know. David is looking forward to the victory. And uh, in verse 11... We read this, deliver me and rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. This, this is a chorus. He's already said this once. He's saying it again. And, it's, and that's really the prayer of this psalm. Deliver me and rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. I'm going to say that one more time. And now I don't want you to think about David. I want you to think about our culture. Could we pray this prayer? <clears throat> Deliver me and rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. I'm not even going to comment. I think you can make that application yourself. 
Amazing. He trusts and asks the Lord to deliver him from his enemies, the enemies of Israel. Now, David, again, has done this, but he declares his trust in the Lord and his deliverance from his enemies over and over again. Because you know what? That is how he gets to the place of trusting God. By taking the truth and not only applying it to his heart, but actually saying it. Does that sound like something we do every Sunday morning? You see, when we come in here, we sing songs and you guys enjoy the worship. We all do. This isn't a concert. It's an opportunity for you to tell the truth about who God is in your life. That's the very definition of praise. When you tell the truth about God, it's praise. You can't say anything that's true about God that isn't praise. So when you come in here, when we come in here and we praise the Lord together, we're doing what David's doing, saying the truth about God. And it's, is it any wonder when the worship service is over, you feel a little lighter? You feel a little encouraged? You, you feel like, oh boy, I'm really glad I came today. Why is that? Why are you uplifted? Because you're telling the truth about God. And when you praise in the midst of your problems, it changes your heart. It changes your mind. Amen? What would the enemy have you to do? Oh, you can't go to church. Too dangerous. Oh, you can go to church, but you can't sing. You can't praise. That would be insane. You see see what happens here? My heart breaks for the brother and the sister in Christ who hasn't praised the Lord for months publicly. I know you can praise the Lord by yourself. It's not even what I'm talking about. Corporate praise. What we've done and what we'll continue to do here, it's not just fun. It is. It's not just enjoyable. It is. It's not just pleasant. It is. It's powerful. It changes your life. You and I, we need to praise the Lord, and especially in the midst of our problems. Okay. Verse 12. I I don't know. Did I read that? I'm getting excited here. Oh, now we get to verse 12. And uh, Pastor Russ mentioned this in the opening today. Then our sons in their youth will be like well-nurtured plants. Now notice, if we pray, if we praise God in our problems, if we cry out to the Lord and the Lord delivers us, then our sons in their youth will be like well-nurtured plants, And our daughters will be like pillars carved to adorn a palace. Our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by tens of thousands in our fields. Our oxen will draw heavy loads. There will be no breaching of walls, no going into captivity, no cry of distress in our streets. Amen. See, that's what happens when God delivers you from your enemies. We know how to get there, but we just read what happens when we do. You'll know God has answered our prayers to deliver us from our enemies when you can read those verses and those things are true. Now, some of those things are happening. We'd like to see more of it, obviously. I love what he says here. You know, he looks forward, declaring his trust in the Lord and in his deliverance from from his enemies. He looks forward to the Lord's blessing on their children. Now, I don't know a parent or anyone that loves kids, grandparent, parent, that doesn't want better for them than they've had themselves. Maybe there are, but I just don't know anyone. Anyone I know would be glad to sacrifice their own life, their own comfort, their own convenience, so that their children can be blessed. And I think that's one of the things that stresses Christian parents out a lot. They think, I'm raising these children, and I'm worried, I'm concerned about what their world's going to be like. You know, 
your parents probably said the same thing. Same God, amen? Same God. And this is a promise we need to hold on to. Those of you who have kids and grandkids, hold on to this promise. If we cry out to God in our trouble, if we praise him in our problems, God doesn't need you around to take care of your kids. Because good, good thing is someday you're not going to be. And they will. And you're probably worried about the world they're going to inherit. Don't. Don't worry about those things. Actually, the scriptures tell us pretty clearly, do not be anxious for anything, but by everything with prayer and petition, make your requests made known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's God's word. That's just not a wonderful little scripture to memorize. That's God's word. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. That's God's word. You can trust that. David understood that. He looks forward to the Lord's blessing on their children. He says, you know, our sons are going to be strong and healthy. And not that we don't want the daughters to be strong and healthy, but it goes on to say that the daughters will be beautiful and strong. And he uses beautiful language, poetry, to say that when he says well-nurtured plants and pillars carved to adorn a palace. But essentially, he's using those metaphors to make the point that he would love to see sons and daughters in the Lord grow up to be strong and healthy and beautiful and, and have everything that life could offer them in the way of God's blessings. And that's our heart here at Calvary Chapel as we continue to invest in the next generation. Now, he looks forward to the Lord's blessing on their crops as well. Now, why would that be? Now, we're not farmers, so we, don't, we, we think, oh, well, yeah, that'd be good. But if you were taking care of sheep or you had flocks or livestock or crops, that's like your job. Okay, that's, that's what you do. That's your business. So if you own a business or you run a business or you have a job or you, you, you work in government, whatever you do, whatever it is that you, you do every week to, to, to provide for yourself and for your family, that's what you want God to bless, right? That's what you want God to bless. So in a sense, that's what he's saying here. Looking forward to the Lord's blessing on their crops, their flocks, their livestock. And then he looks forward to the Lord's protection. I love it. There'll be no breaching of walls, no going into captivity, no cry of distress in our streets. That's what he desires. That's what we desire, right? Wouldn't it be great if we could say no crying of distress in our streets? Heck, it's been a a year of nothing but crying of distress in our streets for one reason or another. But we know the Lord will protect us. He will prevent walls from being breached. He will protect us from being invaded and taken into captivity as his people. If we cry out to him and if we praise him in our problems. Now, David declares a blessing on the Lord's people Israel as he closes. Uh, In verse 15, he says it this way. Blessed. Now, I I want you to think about this. Blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Let's just say that together. Ready? Blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. The word for blessing, it means happy, filled, beyond belief with happiness, abundant happiness. I'm okay with that blessing. I'll receive that blessing from David and from the Lord today, and hopefully you will as well. Okay, now we get to what I believe might be the song that David composed that he alluded to in Psalm 144. Remember he said, I'm going to sing a new song? I think this might be it. I didn't realize that until I reviewed my notes last night. I said, you know something? It's possible. Because what did he say? He said in verse 9 of Psalm 144, I will sing a new song to you, O God. On the ten-string lyre, I will make music to you, to the one who gives victory to kings, who delivers his servant David 
from the deadly sword. And then we get to Psalm 145, and guess what? It's a song of praise. It's the very thing David just said he was going to write. So whether it was this song or another, not important, but this certainly could be it. A couple of things about this psalm. Psalm 145 is what we call an acrostic poem, as each of the stanzas begin with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. We have 26 in the English alphabet. So many of your children and many of you learned to read uh, when you said these sort of acrostic things, like or little, little verses, like A is for apple, B is for boy, C is for cat, right? That's what an acrostic is. It takes the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and starts each stanza with successive letters. So you have Psalm uh, 145, and there are like 21 verses. So obviously in there you've got these 22 letters. Now, David is determined to praise the name of the Lord both now and forever. And he says so in verses 1 and 2 when he says, I will exalt you, oh, uh, uh, exalt you my, my God, my king, or my God, the king. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. That doesn't need any interpretation. David's going to praise the Lord both now and forever. And then he praises the Lord for the greatness of his mighty works. And God has done some mighty things, by the way. You are the work of his hands. Book of Ephesians says we are his workmanship. In Greek, that word is poema. It means you are God's work of art. You realize that? So when we talk about mighty works, you and I, we are the works of God. Not just the fact that he created you, but that he's fashioned your heart for him, protected you and invested in you, and loved you since you came into this world. And continues to do so. You, your children, your grandchildren, your family. That's God's heart. He knows this. And so he says this in verse 3. He says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Now, these are interesting words because he's essentially saying one generation will commend your works to another. Then he says, they will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. Then he says, I'm going to meditate. Then he says, they're going to tell of the works. I'm going to proclaim the works. You get this impression that there's a dialogue, that he, as a parent in one generation, is proclaiming the works of God to the younger generation, and that the younger generation is in turn proclaiming them as well. Now, there is a lot of fear in education today among Christian parents, many Christian parents here and that I know homeschool for that reason. It's a legitimate fear. There's a lot of ungodliness being promoted in our schools. And colleges, please. So, you know, it's bad. We know it's bad. So, it's vitally important that you not just rely on the 45 minutes to an hour of Sunday school that our precious children receive here on Sundays. Let me be honest. That time is a fun time for our kids. It's a productive time of teaching. But it frees you up as parents to receive from the Word. That's the primary focus. We keep them safe, we tell them God loves them, and we hope to get a little of God's word in their hearts. 
But that's all Sunday school is. If you think that that is even remotely close to what's required to raise a child in the ways of the Lord, it simply isn't. It's ridiculous to think that, honestly. So, you as parents and grandparents and mentors and coaches, we have a great responsibility to raise this next generation in the ways of the Lord. We just had a leadership meeting on Tuesday, and the majority of our time that we were together, we discussed how we can assist our parents in that endeavor and in that work. And we don't even know the answers to all the questions. What we did do is we put a day on the calendar in a couple weeks where our leadership team is going to get together, and I'm going to put my project manager hat back on. I had a 20-year career in that. And we're going to sit down, and we're going to go through just brainstorming session to see how we can be super creative and responsive to God's work investing in our children. Now, when I say children, I mean all the children, but specifically maybe the younger children under the age of 12, but all children. And we're going to get together. We're going to do that. Why are we going to do that? Because of what David said here. One generation will commend your works to another. Sunday school is great. That's a starting point. But we see that there's an opportunity as leaders and as parents and all of us working together to provide more than just we go to church on Sunday and, oh, yes, Sunday school's fun. They give us goldfish and juice and we sing songs. And listen, that's great. I'm not diminishing that. It's wonderful, but it's a starting point. Then you as parents are raising your families in the ways of the Lord, because by the way, that's your responsibility. But we as leaders in the church want to come alongside and provide activities, events, things that they can do together, especially now in the world of COVID. Many of your children are either in hybrid systems of education or not attending school physically. Many of your children are isolated from their friends and family, things like soccer and other sports and even trail life and things like that. Many of those things have been put online or or just beginning to get back to, to normal. So we as a church, we feel we have not a responsibility, tremendous opportunity to commend the works of God to the next generation. And I'm not going to be bashful about saying that. That is going to be 90% of our vision going into this year. We're going to continue to do all the other things we do. But that's our focus. Why? Well, you see, you'll see them come in in a little while, all the little kids that are here. We miss out on getting that generation to give their hearts to God. We failed miserably. I should have never you know, planted this church. We should have never come here. We should have never even started if that would be the end result. I mean, now that sounds bleak. But think about it. Think about it. If we're just going to do this for a little while and then our kids are going to go ahead and be like the world and run off and do all the things that the world is doing and forget all the lessons that they learned here at church and that you taught them, then we've failed beyond miserably. We're not going to let that happen. Ultimately, your children will make their own decisions. But we feel it is our responsibility and a tremendous opportunity to make sure they know what they're choosing. And so to that end, we're going to put a whole lot of fun stuff. I I don't even know what we're going to do yet. We're still figuring it out. Like I said, God's ways are beyond my ways. But we're going to get together as leaders and prayerfully discern what God might want to do in this new year. And as the weather gets nicer, praise God, right? And the weather gets nicer. We have opportunities to do outdoor activities and do things with the kids. We're not sure how frequent. And we're going to be looking for feedback from some of you parents. Because what we want to do, if we can replace some of what's no longer in existence in our communities or has been diminished, great. If we can add to it, fine. But if we can provide a safe, wholesome, God-centered environment 
so that your children have the social needs in their lives met as well as the spiritual needs, emotional needs, and other things. And it's done by people who love them and care for them in Christ. We don't need to continue to go to the world to meet those needs. And you better not because there's an agenda. You bring your children to the slaughter many times when you enroll them in some of these things. You have to be very, very careful. I'm not telling parents here anything they don't agree with or or know. So pray for that. We'll be getting together in just a couple weeks. And So when I read this, one generation will commend your works to another. That's it. That's our vision for this new year. And I pray that you'll pray with us through that and, and perhaps jump on board. And if you have any ideas or thoughts about that, parents, but not just parents, all of us, let us know. So as we get back to our psalm here, that application is really strong for me, given our leadership meeting this week and the things that God is leading us to do. <coughs> but <clears throat> he knows the importance of one generation telling the next generation about the Lord. And he knows that they're going to declare the Lord's mighty works and the glorious splendor of his majesty to their children. So how important is this? So he's going to meditate on the Lord and his mighty works so he can share them with them, so that they can declare the power of the Lord's mighty works. And then he's going to proclaim the Lord's mighty works to the next generation. So it's a dialogue in your coming and your going. You invest in the lives of your children, your grandchildren, in the relationship you have with them. You're instilling in their hearts the truth of God's word, his love and his truth. And David understood that. Sadly, David didn't do such a good job with his kids. But we're going to do a good job with ours. Amen? So he declares, each generation will praise the Lord for his goodness and righteousness. And that is our vision. That was David's prayer. Now David goes on to praise the Lord for the greatness of his love and the glory of his kingdom. In verses 8 through the first part of verse 13. He says, and remember, David understood the love of God. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men, all men, may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Amen? So as he's started by saying that, you know, these children, this next generation, they're going to celebrate with abundant goodness. They're going to joyfully sing of your righteousness. He's also recognizing they have a lot to sing about because the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Is that door open there? Would you, would you just close that? We're almost wrapping up. Thank you so much. Okay. You guys, you know what? Come on in. That's okay. We love you guys. I didn't realize they were. We got a little bit of a late start today because we gave everyone a little extra time to settle in with the parking. And uh, yeah, you guys can sit down. It's okay. It's apropos. These little guys are why we're here, right? Amen. So. As we talk about all of the love and the mercy of God and his compassion and his grace, 
When we talk about those things, it's not just that we talk about them, we're sharing them with others so that others can know the truth. And so David praises the Lord. What we've just read is in praising the Lord for God's love. And by the way, it's not enough to just share God's truth. And it's not enough to just share God's love. You have to share God's love and God's truth, as we've already talked about. So, he declares the greatness of his love and glory of his kingdom. He declares the Lord's great love and compassion on all his creation. And by the way, I'm going to give you those words. Those are words that were used in Exodus 34. They're also used in Psalm 103 to describe God. God uses those words to describe himself. I am compassionate, abounding in mercy. That's how God describes himself. The way it's described there, the Lord is gracious, I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. That's how God describes himself. And David takes that and says he shows grace. That means gracious. You're gracious, you show grace. He's compassionate, that is, he's merciful, he's full of compassion. Slow to anger, obviously, he's patient, long-suffering, forbearing. He's rich in love, which means he's overflowing with mercy, goodness, kindness, loving kindness and faithfulness. And he's good, which means he's pleasant, kind, and excellent. All of these things are true about God. He says it about himself. He declares that all creation will praise the Lord. He declares that the Lord's saints will tell men of the glory of his kingdom and his mighty works. And he declares that the Lord's kingdom again is an everlasting and eternal kingdom. Back to that analogy of the tree. We fuss about one leaf. And the tree analogy works to just make the comparison, the point. We should be focused on the rest of all God has for us for all eternity. Amen? Okay, so now we pick it up in the latter part of verse 13. The Lord is faithful. Amen? The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. By the way, that includes you. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them food. At their proper time, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. You see, David is praising the Lord for his faithfulness, for his provision. Because he knows and he declares the Lord is faithful to keep his promises. He's loving toward all of his creation. He cares for those who are in trouble. He rescues those who are in need. He provides food for every living thing that looks to him. Every living thing that looks to him. You know, the other day... Uh, we came home, and there was a rabbit, and we haven't seen the rabbits in a while, sitting right by our door, and we're trying to figure out, how do these rabbits get through a winter like this? Like, where do they get their food? They, they can't go to Costco. So where do they get their food? Well, the answer is, I don't know, actually, but I know this. That rabbit looked pretty chunky. Wherever he's getting his food, it must be good food. It must be plenty of it. So... God does provide for every living thing that looks to him. And finally, in verses 17 through 20, David praises the Lord for his righteousness and his protection when he says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. See, there's that truth. We talked about his love. There's his truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So our God is good, and I'm going to get to that last verse in just a minute, but David is praising the Lord for his righteousness and his protection. 
He's declaring that the Lord is righteous in everything he does and loving toward all his creation. He responds to all those who truly call on him. The Lord meets the needs of those who honor and respect him and protects all those who love him and will destroy the wicked. Now I'm going to ask Pastor Russ to come up. He's going to close us with one last song. And as he's coming up, I want to bring your attention to the last verse of Psalm 145. David closes this psalm, but actually the book of Psalms, or book five of the book of Psalms, is closed with this one verse. And he does so by praising the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, Psalm 145 is the last of the Psalms of book five before the epilogue, which is the last five songs of the book of Psalms. They close the whole book, and they're all Psalms of praise. And we'll start that next week and over the next two weeks. But Psalm 145 is the last of the books, or last of the Psalms of Book 5 before the epilogue. And this, this book, Book 5 of the Book of Psalms, we believe was compiled during the rule of Nehemiah, very, very late in Israel's history. Each of the five books of Psalms end with a doxology, a grand doxology. And Psalm 145, verse 21, is no exception. A doxology is a statement of praise. We get to verse 21, and this is what we read. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen? Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouraging word from Psalms 144 and 145. And may we now continue to praise you in our hearts and with our lips. For we know that you have done great things and will continue to do great things for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.